Hey guys, welcome to our very first podcast series here on the Bell Shoals Women podcast. We are thrilled to begin our first series with a study called Sheep, the worth of women in the storyline of the Bible. Now this study was written by speaker, author, and great friend to our podcast, April Swears. If you'd like to know more about April, you can find more of her content on her podcast called Her God Speaks or by visiting her webpage at hergodspeaks.com. I am so excited about this study because it's journey through the Bible with our eyes wide open to the value of women. We are gonna explore what is truth and maybe some mistruth we've heard in regard to women and learn how we were created in the image of God and that we are essential to his mission in the world. The Bell Shoals Women podcast proudly presents She with April Swears. Well, one of the very best things about this week's lesson is how hard it was to narrow down what passage to cover. Can we all just take a minute and marvel at how many passages there are in the Gospels that show us Christ's tender, dignifying love for women. It is astounding. In your homework this week, you watched Christ defend the sinful woman with the alabaster jar of perfume against Simon the Pharisee's accusations of impropriety. Jesus welcomed her and even commended her. You saw him rebel against social convention by initiating a deep theological conversation with a woman at a well who later becomes the leading evangelist in her village. You heard stone after stone hit the ground as men turned and walked away from an adulterous woman who, thanks to Jesus, they realized they had no right to condemn. Had there been time and space, I would have taken you to Luke 10, where Jesus encourages Mary to sit and learn at his feet, a place reserved only for men in that culture. And mind you, Martha makes it very clear, there was a lot of housework to do. What does Jesus say? Let her sit and learn. (laughs) We could have gone to Luke 7, where Jesus has compassion on a no-name widow and raises her son from the dead. We could have marveled at his close personal friendship with Mary and Martha and how a group of faithful women followed him and supported him throughout his earthly ministry. When all his disciples ran and hid, these women were still there at the cross, at his tomb. In fact, women were the very first witnesses to the resurrection. We could have looked at how Jesus uses women in his parables and illustrations, often casting them as positive examples of kingdom virtues. Or we could have set our eyes where Jesus sets his eyes on a poor, nameless, seemingly insignificant widow dropping two tiny coins into the temple treasury. Or the faithful, courageous women who take center stage at the birth of Christ could have been our focus. Mary, 
Elizabeth, Anna. And needless to say, it was not hard finding a passage that highlights how Jesus valued women. The hard part was narrowing it down to one. But you'll be proud of me. I did. <laughs> and I've chosen Luke 8, 40 through 56, because I think there is something particularly instructive about contrasts. And this passage gives us a really good one. So I'm going to read it all the way through so that we can get the big picture, and then we'll slow down and take it one section at a time. I don't have a cute outline for you this morning. We are just going to walk through the text. All right? So Luke chapter 8, I am starting in verse 40. When Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Just then, a man named Jairus came. He was a leader of the synagogue. He fell down at Jesus' feet. He pleaded with him to come to his house because he had an only daughter, about 12 years old, and she was dying. While he was going, the crowds were nearly crushing him, and a woman suffering from bleeding for 12 years who had spent all that she had on doctors and yet could not be healed by any, approached from behind and touched the end of his robe. Instantly, her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. And they all denied it. And Peter said, Master, the crowds are hemming in and pressing against you. Someone did touch me, said Jesus. I know that power has gone out for me down before him in the presence of all the people. And she declared the reason she had touched him and how she was instantly healed. Daughter, he said to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And while he was still speaking, someone came from the synagogue leader's house and said, your daughter is dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. And when Jesus heard it, he answered him, don't be afraid, only believe and she will be saved. After he came to the house, he let no one enter with him except Peter, John, James, and the child's father and mother. And everyone was crying and mourning for her, but he said, stop crying because she is not dead, but asleep. And they laughed at him because they knew she was dead. So he took her by the hand and called out, child, get up. And her spirit returned and she got up at once. Then he gave orders that she be given something to eat. And her parents were astounded, but he instructed them to tell no one what happened. All right, so here's the main idea we are pulling from this passage this morning. Women did not interrupt Christ's ministry. In many ways, they were the support and substance of it. So women did not interrupt Christ's ministry. In many ways, they were the support and substance of it. And I think you'll see that more as we walk through the passage. All right, so we are going to take uh, little chunks at a time. We're going to start with the first couple of verses. Let me read them to you again. It says, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him. I'm in verse 40, for they were all expecting him. And just then a man named Jairus came he was a leader of the synagogue. He fell down at Jesus' feet and pleaded with him to come to his house because he had an only daughter, about 12 years old, and she was dying. All right, so Jesus has been performing some miracles. 
So word is spreading. The crowds are building. They are waiting for him. And we are introduced to the first character in the story whose name is Jairus. He was a leader in the synagogue, which, which tells us that he was a man of high standing in the community. The fact that his name is mentioned, there are actually very few names mentioned um, in, in, these, in these stories. The fact that his name is mentioned reflects the fact that he was known. He had some status. He was important. And Jairus has a desperate need. His only daughter is dying, and there is nothing anyone can do for her. So you have this man of high standing. He gets as low as he can. He falls at Jesus' feet, and he begs for a miracle. And so far, nothing in this scene feels out of place. Of course, Jesus will hear this man's humble plea. Of course, he will heal the little girl. And as we would expect, Jesus immediately begins to head toward Jairus's house. So far, so good, right? That's what Jairus is thinking. Yes, yes. Here we go. We'll look at verse, uh, second part of verse 42. While he was going, the crowds were nearly crushing him. And a woman suffering from bleeding for 12 years who had spent all that she had on doctors and yet could not be healed by any approached from behind and touched the end of his robe. Now, the first thing we learn is that the crowds don't stay put, do they? They go where Jesus goes and they are not the least bit concerned with his personal space. In verse 43, another character comes on scene. She is part of that crowd. And she couldn't be any more different from Jairus. The contrast is extremely revealing. All right, first, he's a man, she's a woman. In that culture, this already puts her way down uh, on, on the totem pole. Second, we are told his name. We are not told her name, indicating that she holds no important status in the community. Third, her issue is not acute like Jairus' daughter. It's, it's chronic. So any of you uh, uh, in the room, maybe you're a nurse, you have a medical background. In terms of medical triage, Jairus' daughter is the priority. She is the most urgent. In fact, a doctor right now who would overlook Jairus's daughter uh, in order to help the woman with the chronic 12-year-long condition would be sued for medical malpractice, right? Well, let's talk about the woman's issue for a few minutes. Luke, who is writing this, he was a doctor, tells us that she was suffering from bleeding for 12 years, and it appears to be uterine bleeding, uh, it's chronic, like I said, and the emphasis here is on the fact that it is incurable. Luke tells us that she had spent all that she had on doctors. Mark paints a bit of a more vivid picture for us. It could be since Luke was a doctor, he's trying to like not be so hard on the doctors, right? But Mark doesn't have that interest, so he just like really spells it out. In Mark 5, 26, he writes, she had endured much 
under many doctors. She spent everything she had and was not helped at all. On the contrary, she became worse, end quote. I want you to think about that phrase, endured much. She endured much under many doctors. And I wonder what kinds of things are behind that word much. Any of you who have dealt with chronic pain, or you know someone who deals with chronic pain, you know firsthand how willing you are to try anything and how devastating it is when that thing you hope, this time it's going to work, this time I'm going to get better, and it doesn't work. I can't think of many things worse than running out of options. And even today, with all of our medical advancements, sometimes there just isn't an answer. And sometimes treatments actually make things worse not better. And so I know there are women listening to this. You do not have to stretch your imagination to to enter into this woman's experience. You, You know this. Well, Matthew, Mark, and Luke use the word suffering in their description of her. That is the word that has defined her life for 12 years. Suffering. She's a suffering woman. And don't miss the fact that 12 years is the same amount of time that Jairus' daughter has been alive. The narrator wants us connecting these two stories together. Now, it's important to note that there is not just a medical issue here, there is actually also a religious and social dimension to this woman's condition. So Leviticus 15 is devoted to laws regarding body fluids and discharge. It's a real blessing to come across in your morning quiet time, let me tell you. You're like, what is this? Weird. The Bible is really weird sometimes. And that's one of the chapters. Well, the first part of that chapter covers normal male-female discharge, so the emission of semen and menstruation. These would deem a person ritually unclean, meaning they could not participate in tabernacle worship or covenant meals or really anything related to their religious life. It's very important to understand, and I... I didn't realize this for so long, but it wasn't wrong to become ritually unclean. There's nothing inherently immoral about sex, like God created that. It's a good thing for husbands and wives to do. Hebrews have a very high view of sex within marriage. All right, so it wasn't wrong to do that. Certainly not wrong to uh, have your period. That's a normal thing. God, like, made that happen, right? Right? It was wrong to not do anything about the ritual impurity and then go to the tabernacle or participate in religious life and worship. That was what was wrong. 
So it wasn't wrong to become ritually unpure. You just had to deal with it properly. And that's what all these laws are telling you. Like this is how you, um, you know, purify yourself after that ritual or ceremonial um, uncleanness, okay? So after an emission of semen, a man had to bathe. He had to wait until evening in order to then participate in worship. A woman who was menstruating had to wait seven days and then bathe and wait until evening to participate in, in that religious life, which honestly, you know, when you're reading it, it can seem a little demeaning, but there was no Advil and there were no feminine hygiene products. So I would for sure be okay taking the seven days off, you know? It would not be a problem. Now, the ritual uncleanness, so that's the first part of Leviticus 15. You get to the end of Leviticus 15, and it, it, it talks about ritual uncleanness related to continual discharge, like the woman in our story. And you see in that text where that was more serious and actually required a burnt offering to be made once the issue was resolved, right? So a burnt offering is not required um, from regular sexual activity or menstruating, but it is required for the, the continual uh, condition of discharge. And this is probably because that kind of condition would have been caused by disease or illness of some kind, which is ultimately a result of the fall, right? The disease and illness exists because of Genesis chapter three and everything that unfolded there, right? And so, and so any kind of disease or, or sickness is a reflection of our brokenness, all right? Um, so while God would never look on a diseased person and condemn them on the basis of their illness, his holiness demands that atonement be made for the disease and the contamination from the disease because of its connection with our fallen state, right? So this is not how he intended our bodies to be. And so all through Leviticus, you see there's this really high bar set for, for worship, and there's this repeated refrain throughout the book, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And so these laws that make zero sense to us, super weird, that's what they're highlighting. That's what they're establishing. That's what they're getting at. This God is holy. And so um, there are certain things you've got to do to be in his presence. So ritual uncleanness didn't make you bad, but it did create distance between you and the worshiping community because guess what? Not only were you ritually unclean, but you can actually transfer your ritual uncleanness to other people. In fact, you would have to be careful where you sit, what you touch, because all of those things could be unclean, which helps us understand why the woman in our story tries so hard to remain anonymous. She really should not have been in that crowd. She certainly should not have touched the garment of a well-known Jewish rabbi. <laughs> Going back to the contrast between her and Jairus, he was a leader of the synagogue. You guys, she would not have even been allowed to go into the synagogue at all. So she is completely cut off from the center of both religious and social life for the Jews living 
in that time. In addition to this, we can safely assume that childbearing was out of question for her. It's highly unlikely that a woman like this would have any marriage prospects in that culture. This would most certainly have been grounds for divorce if if she had ever been married at one point. And so it's really, really hard to imagine a worst case scenario for a Jewish woman living in the time of Christ than what this woman is dealing with. Not for a week, not for a month or a year, 12 years. 12 years of chronic physical pain, 12 years of isolation from the religious community, 12 years of infertility and probably no marriage or even the hope of marriage. This is indeed a suffering woman. But by the sheer grace of God, her suffering drew her to Jesus. And she thought if she could just touch his garment, maybe she would be healed. Now, is this perfect faith? Most definitely no. (laughs) There's definitely some superstition mixed in here. She got a little Harry Potter mixed into her theology, right? Little hocus pocus, just touches touches robe and and I'll be better. But apparently it was good enough which is really important to note if you tend to play the role of faith police. I don't know anything about that. I never do that. (laughs) It's really not the strength or even the purity of a person's faith that matters. It is the object of their faith that makes the difference. She came desperate, and she came believing that Jesus could do something about it, and he did. And verse 44 says, instantly... Her bleeding stopped. And this is an indication that she felt this condition. It was a painful condition, and instantly the pain was gone. Probably for the first time in 12 years, this woman felt zero pain. And the conversation that follows is really fascinating. Let's take a look. Verse 45. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds are hemming you in and pressing against you. Someone did touch me, said Jesus. I know that power has gone out for me. And when the woman saw that she was discovered, she came trembling and fell down before him in the presence of all the people. She declared the reason she had touched him and how she was instantly healed. Now imagine what she expected Jesus to say. And then hear the words he actually said, verse 48. Daughter, he said to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. There's a lot of debate, a lot of ink spilled as to why Jesus asked who touched him. Throughout the Bible, as far back as Genesis 3, we saw it just a few weeks ago, we see this pattern of God asking questions of which he already knows the answers in order to draw people out. I personally think that is what's going on here, but there are lots of different of, of opinion on that. 
if you want to go to town, you can look up all the different things people think. <laughs> Peter is just the best, right? I love Peter. So Jesus says, who touched me? And Peter's like, who touched you? Like everyone is touching you right now. We are all being touched. It's like the very worst day at Disney World pre-COVID, all right? Like wall-to-wall people. And what Peter didn't realize is that in a sea of a million hands, Christ will see the one that is raised in faith. And I love how Matthew describes this part of the story. I think it's Matthew, I think it's chapter nine. It says, Jesus turned and saw her. He turned and he saw. Do you hear the intentionality in that? He is giving her his full attention. And if you, if you see this story in connection with Jairus' crisis, this is absolutely remarkable. To anyone in the crowd seeking to avoid ceremonial contamination, this woman was a liability. To Jairus, she is a tragic interruption. To the disciples, she was completely invisible, just one of the crowd. To Jesus, she was a person worth stopping for. She mattered to him. And there's a lot of things I want us to get out of this lesson, but here's one of them. You are not an interruption to Jesus. And I don't know if you struggle with this, but I struggle with this. I think there are a lot of bigger, better, more important people in the world. Who am I? (laughs) Who am I? Well, I'm not an interruption. I know that. (laughs) That's what everyone would have thought about this woman. Jesus is literally on his way to heal a dying girl who belongs to a man who has a name and a respectable position. According to our modern definition, what he's on his way to do is true ministry. Healing a dying girl? Well, that's going to be an event. That is going to wow. That is going to garner him more followers. But Jesus doesn't define ministry the way we do, does he? She doesn't interrupt his plan. She is his plan. She is his plan. And look at what Jesus says to her. Daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the only time recorded in the Gospels where Jesus calls a woman daughter. And this is what makes me think the connection between Jairus's story and this woman's story isn't just chronological. I think there's also a theological motive for weaving these two stories together. Jairus is a dad who has fallen at the feet of Jesus to plead for the life 
of his daughter. It's how the story begins. There is nobody, nobody who will do that for this woman. She doesn't have a mediator. She doesn't have an advocate. She doesn't have a father. Oh, but she does now. She does now. Daughter, daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. She got way more than a physical healing that day. She received salvation and for the first time in a really long time experienced true holistic peace. After this, the story shifts right back. It shifts right back. After this big interruption, which to Jesus was not an interruption at all, the story shifts back to the original crisis. But you'll notice Jairus isn't mentioned by name or singled out again. The focus shifts entirely to this little girl. And do not miss the fact that there are two broad categories of womanhood represented in this story, and Jesus considers both of them worth his time. Verse 49. When he was still speaking, someone came from the synagogue leader's house and said, your daughter is dead, don't bother the teacher anymore. When Jesus heard it, he answered him, don't be afraid, only believe and she will be saved. After he came to the house, he let no one enter with him except Peter, John, James, and the child's father and mother. Everyone was crying and mourning for her, but he said, stop crying because she is not dead, but asleep. And they laughed at him because they knew she was dead. So he took her by the hand and called out, child, get up. And her spirit returned and she got up at once and he gave orders that she be given something to eat. And her parents were astounded, but he instructed them to tell no one what happened. All right, so Jesus has everyone leave. He is not one for theatrics. This isn't about the crowd. And he did not think she was actually asleep. It's clear she was dead, and Jesus knew that. But when you're the resurrection and the life, <laughs> death is not final. It's a shadow, right? He came, he came to this earth to, to overcome it once and for all. And what we see him do for this little girl is a foretaste of what's to come for all who believe in him. And that's why in the epistles, you talk about believers who have died, refers to them as they who have fallen asleep. It's temporary. Well, this scene is it's so tender. So Jesus takes her little hand in his hand, and he says, child, get up. And that word child in the original, it's very precious. It could be translated honey or sweetie. And she gets up right away. And I love the fact that Jesus makes sure she's got something to eat. Again, Jesus is very holistic in his approach to people's lives. He heals their bodies. He heals their minds. He heals their souls. He cares that they eat. 
and pay close attention to the place of touch in this story. The woman touched his robe. He felt it and he asked, who touched me? Then she gives an explanation for why she touched him. And this is made even more significant by the fact that she is ritually unclean and could transfer that uncleanness to anyone she touched. Dead bodies were also considered unclean. Like I said before, it wasn't wrong or sinful to touch one, but you had to purify yourself before you were fit to worship again. And here's kind of how it went. If a clean thing touches an unclean thing, it becomes unclean. But here we have Jesus touching the unclean or being touched by the unclean. And instead of him becoming unclean, they become clean. You guys follow that? The perfect sinless son of God is able to absorb anything that would keep people from the presence of the Father. What a beautiful picture of what he would ultimately do for us on the cross. You and I are unfit to worship. We are all defiled, and it's way worse than ceremonial uncleanness. We are actually unclean. Romans 3.23 says, We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us deserves the full weight of God's wrath to be poured out on us. But for those who believe, it is poured out on Jesus instead. He absorbs every last drop and we are made clean and holy in him forever and ever. The picture of the gospel in this passage is so stunning. This past week, I was reading... And I came across a sentence that, that said this. So Jesus had time, touch, and tears for women. Jesus had time, touch, and tears for women. When there was no time to spare, when a little girl's life was hanging on by a thread, He stopped to heal a no-name sufferer and calls her his daughter. He reaches for the hand of a little girl, grasps it in his own, and gives her new life. This isn't the only time Jesus raises someone from the dead. He does it again for Lazarus. And in that story, he stands by the grave and he weeps with the women who are mourning the loss of their brother. Jesus had time, touch, and tears for women. In a culture when it would have been taboo, out of line, looked down upon, thought of as weak, Jesus did it anyway, because Jesus loves and values women. I have a quote on your listening guide today. It's by Dorothy Sayers in her book, tiny little book of essays called Are Women Human? And she summarizes it this way. Perhaps it is no wonder that the women were first at the cradle 
and last at the cross. They had never known such a man like this man, and there has never been such another. A prophet and a teacher who never nagged at them, never flattered or coaxed or patronized, who never made an art jokes about them, never treated them as the women, God help us, or the ladies, God bless them, who rebuked without quarrelousness and praised without condescension who never mapped out their sphere for them, never urged them to be feminine or jeered at them for being female, who took their questions and their arguments seriously, who had no ax to grind and no uneasy male dignity to defend, who took them as he found them and was completely unselfconscious. There is no act, no sermon, no parable in the whole gospel that borrows its pugnancy from female perversity. Nobody could possibly guess from the words and deeds of Jesus that there was anything funny about a woman's nature. That's good. Far from being an interruption to his ministry, Women were in so many ways, so many ways, the support and substance of it. If you're in any doubt, you take a highlighter to the Gospels. You highlight every conversation, every interaction, every reference to a woman you find in those four books of the Bible, you, it, it will blow your mind. It will blow your mind. We have a Savior who loves women so much. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this passage. I thank you for the contrast. I thank you that you didn't see this woman as an interruption, and that speaks volumes about how you see us. It speaks volumes also about how we ought to see others. I, I think of how many times I, my son and his issues, and it, it feels like such an interruption. I've got ministry to do. He is the ministry. He is the ministry. And so, Lord, we all have, we all have people in our lives that are they're broken, and they're hard, and they're hurting, and they're suffering, and they feel like an interruption to us. We are headed to do something big and, and mighty, and we're stuck here helping them. Lord, help us to have the heart of our Savior toward those people in our lives. I thank you that you turned and you saw her. You saw her and you cared. And you loved her and you love us. So Lord, I just, uh, I pray as we continue on this week into the epistles and we, we start to look at um, some of the, really honestly, Lord, the passages that they ruffle my feathers a little bit sometimes. We're going to learn about submission and some hard things. Lord, I pray that we would look at it all through the lens of our Savior, who is the ultimate, most beautiful example of submission in all of human history. And, and so, Lord, I just I pray that you would help us to, to, to not forget what we've seen this week as we move into next week, and that you would continue to teach and guide and affirm to us how much you value women 
And that would serve to embolden us to do the work you've called us to do in wherever sphere of life you would have us do it. We love you so much, and we thank you for all that you are. We thank you for the gospel. Um, We thank you that you look at us and you call us daughter. Uh, Wow, that's amazing. And, And we love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.